Coming up on Tech Nation, I speak with Matt Abrams. He teaches strategic communication at Stanford Business School. And what could be more strategic than speaking well in a difficult situation? His book is Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. Then we go beyond the current wave of weight loss and type 2 diabetes drugs to enabling all the related hormones, not just GLP-1, and without an injection. Dr. Stefan Sebastian Bowles from Afaya Pharma explains their current efforts now in Phase 3. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2014, I was able to speak with Ed Catmull, then president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, and the author of Creativity, Inc., Overcoming the Unseen Forces That Can Stand in the Way of True Inspiration. I asked him to go back to 1995, to Toy Story, the very first animated movie entirely created on a computer. I asked him, how much was that a technical breakthrough? And how much was it a matter of Hollywood finally trusting technology? Well, it wasn't Hollywood embracing technology. Uh, What it was was a group of people off to the side, outside of the system, Uh, working for 20 years to put all the pieces together, uh, which were initially largely technical. But there was one exception in that Hollywood community, and that was George Lucas. But he truly was an exception. Uh, And so we were located an hour away from Silicon Valley. We're also an hour plane ride away from Hollywood, where George gave us the support in a fairly unique environment. So in our case, it was a little bit of the technology, there was the storytelling part. There was Steve Jobs being involved with it. And there's a, a rather unusual combination, but not coming out through the normal course of Hollywood. This is really sort of a unique way of developing story. Yes, there's a different model. In fact, I would say that for the long form of filmmaking today or storytelling, there are three different models. There's the one that you see on television now where, where you know some of these programs are really very good. And you've got story teams and writers that stay together over an extended period of time, which I think adds to the quality. There's the live-action model where groups go off and then they, they form to come together to make a, a, a film. But then at the end of the film, they disperse. So you don't have any real sense of community on the film. And there's a more a, a random nature to whether the films are good or not. And, and then at, at Pixar, we came up with our own model which is that the filmmakers all stay together at the studio and form a long-term community, and they are a support and help group for each other as they help each other on, other, on their other films. Uh, and for me, it's a great model. So that Andrew, Pete, or Lee, they'll work on their own films, but they'll spend time on other people's films. And it's the fact that they're supporting each other, which enriches them and, and helps draw people out of getting lost in their own films. It kind of put, makes it a storytelling enterprise, and some of the output along the way happen to be films. Oh, very much so. It's this uh, Storytelling is the way we communicate with each other. And you go right from when you write, read to your children 
It's, of course, movies and television, but it's also news. It's our human way of communicating. And there are ways of, of having the form of communication, but ultimately what you want is to connect with people emotionally in order to really connect. And in fact, one of the issues for us was having succeeded, and, and I would say this is true even in Silicon Valley, a lot of these teams, after they succeeded, start to fall apart. So you just think about all these companies, whether they're internet or computer companies, they're very successful, they make a major impact, then something goes wrong. So while they stay together longer, ultimately there are some forces that come in and undo them. And so the central question for us is, if these forces are at play at all times, and I think they are, including here, then how do we pay attention to them so that we can at least address the problems that arise whenever you're doing something new? This 2014 Tech Nation interview with Ed Catmull, then president of Pixar Animation and Disney Animation, talks about his only book thus far, Creativity, Inc. In 2018, Ed Catmull retired from Pixar and Disney, and during his tenure, Pixar produced such films as Finding Nemo, Cars, The Incredibles, Brave, Finding Dory, and Coco. His work has been recognized creatively by numerous Academy Awards and technologically by the John Van Neumann Medal. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with Matt Abrams, who teaches strategic communication at Stanford Business School. He'll coach us on how to respond when we're put on the spot. We have a few things to learn, but the good news is we can all learn it. And then what's next after Ozembic and Wagovi and the like? How about a drug in development which releases all the relevant hormones and not just GLP-1 and doesn't require injections? Dr. Stefan Sebastian Bowles from Afaya Pharma explains their approach currently in Phase 3. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Matt Abrams. Matt, welcome to Tech Nation. I'm excited to be here with you, Moira. Thank you. Now, everyone, and I mean everyone, has woken up in the middle of the night and said to themselves, I should have said this, I should have said that. Everyone finds themselves at some point put on the spot and we fail. Sometimes we don't fail. We don't remember those. We're put on the spot and we fail. What are the various reasons we fail? Do we fail differently? What is that? So many of us, when we're put on the spot, that is answering questions, giving feedback, making small talk, introducing ourselves, we put ourselves under intense pressure. We want to do it right. We want to give the right answer, the best feedback. We want to be the most engaging person in the small talk conversation. And this pressure we put on ourselves 
makes it more difficult for us to do it well at all. You'll appreciate this more than, than most people is, you know, our brains are like a computer, not a perfect analogy, but you only have so much bandwidth. And if my laptop or phone is running lots of apps or windows are open, my processor is less efficient with each one of those. So if my brain is trying to do it right, it gets in the way of me being able to do it at all. So this pressure we put on ourselves, on top of the fact that most of us just get nervous in speaking situations, makes it really hard to succeed. So we have to dial that evaluation, that judgment down to maximize the bandwidth we have to focus on what it is we're saying. So I like to say it's not about perfection, it's about connection. It's how do we connect? How do we share what we need to share rather than really stressing on how to say it right? Which, by the way, there is no right way to communicate. There are better ways and worse ways, but no one right way. So that's the biggest impediment to being successful. Now, has science been able to study this at all? Sure. We absolutely have examples of where when we're put under duress, it's hard for us to actually respond. There's a very simple test that anybody can search online. It's called the Stroop test. And the Stroop test is very simple. It's a list of colors. And in some cases, the color names are actually in the color that you are seeing. So when I say red, it's printed in red. And that's very easy for me to process. But then the test becomes where they put the word for the color in a different color. So I might see the word red printed in blue. And when I have to say the color that is written, it becomes very cognitively challenging. And this is an example of how when we give our brains multiple tasks to navigate through, it doesn't perform as well. And almost everybody who takes the Stroop test makes more mistakes and is slower in processing. And that, that's the same thing that's going on when I'm judging what I'm saying, when I'm evaluating, am I doing it right? It's exactly the same process. Oh, my goodness. It's my boss talking to me. Oh, yeah, <laughs> asking exactly. me a hard question. And I wanted it to be so right. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Or I, it's my boss uh, asking me a question and I know there's a promotion. And if I don't answer this right, I'm not going to get that promotion. And all that chatter in our head is getting in the way of us being able to respond to the boss's question. Now, you actually cite a really great and believable reason why you might be the right person to tell us how to suddenly answer an unexpected question. And that's because your last name is Abrahams. Often at the top of the alphabetic list of students in every class you ever took. I mean, you did you have an unnatural number of unexpected questions in your life, in your student life? Oh, my goodness. Yes. I, alphabetically, I, I knew exactly where I would sit in almost every class, and I knew that I would likely go first every single time. And many of my classmates really appreciated it because by the time it got to them, they had time to think about it and plan. You know, now the folks at the end of the alphabet, they struggle, too, because they want to be original and everything has been said before it got to them. So if you're at the beginning or the end of an alphabet, you, you've grown up speaking more spontaneously, typically, than most people. And while that sounds silly, I I actually think it's what's helped me in these moments because I've just had so much practice doing it. But the, the counterintuitive thing is that we can all get better at speaking spontaneously. Many of us feel you're either born with the gift of gab or you're not. And I am here to tell you in my own life and the work I do as an instructor, as the work I do as a coach, you can absolutely get better at this, but it takes time and it takes practice. And that's why I spent a lot of time developing a methodology to help people. Yes, a lot of time, a lot of years. And there are six aspects to it. 
Number one, where are we? Right. And so there is a methodology and it is six steps, but there's no pressure to go through it in each, each step in order. And it's baby step. It's incremental. It's not like you have to do all of this to get better. Any one portion of this will help. So the six step methodology, first and foremost, starts with managing anxiety. Anxiety looms large in all communication, planned or spontaneous. So we have to manage anxiety. You take a two-pronged approach. You manage symptoms and you manage sources. And I'm happy to talk more about that. Step two is what we talked about already. It's this notion of switching from perfection to connection. It's turning down the volume on that self-evaluation we do. Step three is about seeing these situations as opportunities, not threats and challenges. When most people are put on the spot, they feel like they are threatened, challenged. This is a crucible I have to deal with rather than seeing it as an opportunity. So when somebody asks you a question, even if it's a harsh, challenging question, you can see that as an opportunity to learn, to extend what you've said, to connect. So we have to see these situations, not just as challenges, but we need to reframe them as, as opportunities. Step four in the methodology, and this is the fourth part, the fourth step that is really about mindset. And then the last two are about messaging. In the fourth step, you have to listen. Listening is critical to communication, especially in the moment. Let me give you an example, Moira. Imagine you and I come out of a, a meeting and you look to me and you say, Hey, Matt, how do you think that went? And if I hear, oh, just feedback, she wants feedback, all I do is I start itemizing all the things that could have gone better or the things that you did wrong. But had I really listened, I would have noticed that you came out the back door, that you were looking down when you asked me for help or feedback. And I might have realized what you really wanted in that moment is not feedback, but support. And by giving you a list of all the things you did wrong or we could do better, I'm actually adversely affecting you in that moment and maybe our relationship. So listening is critical. When we move from the mindset steps to the messaging steps, the last two steps, we actually have to craft the message. And we do that through structure. Many of us, when we speak in the moment and on the spot, we just itemize and list things one after the other. And our brains are not wired for lists. We have to put it in a structure. A structure is nothing more than a logical connection of ideas, a story, if you will, beginning, middle, and an end. The one example I always use, if you've ever seen a television ad or you've ever tried to persuade somebody to your point of view, you've probably used problem, solution, benefit. Here's something that's wrong or a challenge. Here's how we can address it. And here's the benefit of doing so. And then the final step is what I call the F word of communication. It's not the naughty one. It's focus. Many of us say more than we need to say. And I know this is a little ironic because I've been talking a lot, but we have to be focused and concise in our communication. My mother has a wonderful saying, and it's tell me the time, don't build me the clock. And many of us, when we're speaking in the moment, we are clock builders. So taken together, these six steps, again, you can start anywhere in that process. You can take baby steps in each, but simply by going through this process in whatever way works for you will help you be a more effective and efficient in the moment communicator. And it may be that some of these you actually already mastered. It's the other ones you really need to work on. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you might be somebody who sees these situations as opportunistic, or you might be an amazing listener, but we can work on the other steps as well. It's one thing to answer the unexpected question, but sometimes what you get is an unfair question, mm -hmm. an aggressive question. Mm -hmm. Do you do it any differently then? 
Well, I think you have to respond a little differently, but the process that you go through is the same. So if it's an unexpected and challenging question, you need to challenge yourself to see some area of commonality. One of the areas of research that I borrow from in creating this methodology is improvisation. And anybody who knows anything about improv knows that they speak spontaneously, but they follow rules. And that's another one of these counterintuitive notions about all of this is you have to practice and, and leverage structure to be spontaneous. And one of the rules that comes from improvisation is yes and. And when somebody asks me a really threatening or challenging question, rather than getting defensive, I can say, where is some area of agreement? Where do we see eye to eye? And, and I'll be quite honest with you. I would much rather deal with somebody asking me a harsh, spicy, challenging question than somebody who's apathetic, because at least the person who is challenging me cares. They care about the topic. And that's at least an area that we can have some agreement on. So the biggest difference when you get something that's spicy and challenging is you have to find some area of commonality to connect so you can move forward with that person. If you know, if you're more comfortable with the question and the question isn't that challenging, you can just go with the question as it comes in. You don't have to necessarily do this extra step. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Matt Abrahams, a longtime lecturer at Stanford Business School in strategic communication and more recently effective virtual presenting. He also coaches many people on all aspects of presenting and just responding to questions. He's here today with his book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're on the Spot. Well, that's another thing that's happened to us more recently, and that's virtual meetings, whether it's Zoom, it's Microsoft Teams, you name it. You're making virtual presentations, but you're also being asked virtually. Sometimes you can't even see that person who asked the snarky question. And yes, I've had that happen to me. <laughs> Absolutely. And this can be very challenging. And we, we need to be prepared regardless of the modality of our spontaneous communication. And spontaneous communication, by the way, can be written as well. I, I think text messaging, Slack responses, those are often spontaneous too. So when I'm talking about spontaneous communication, it's not just what's coming out of your mouth in that moment. But we, we have to look at the technology and understand that it can present us with some challenges, like I can't see who's asking the question. But at the same time, we have some advantages with technology. So I might be able to, in the moment, as somebody asks a challenging question, I could perhaps send a chat to a colleague who might be able to help me in the situation. Maybe they know more than I do. Perhaps I can use what's in the periphery of my vision to look something up or to remind myself of something. So technology, while it can make some of these challenges seem more intense, there are also things we can leverage to help a, be a little bit easier for us too. Well, it's not just being put on the spot. It's also when we know we have to give a speech or a presentation. Each of us can get really worked up and for weeks, if you will. In fact, you start with a quote from Mark Twain. <laughs> it usually takes me more than three weeks to prepare a good impromptu speech. <laughs> you mean, even the greats, <laughs> they really have to work at this? Yeah. Well, so what I love about that quote is that it really is implying this notion of preparation is required for actually doing 
any kind of in the moment speaking. And if you think about it, if you're an athlete, you do lots of drills and you practice. So when you play your game, you can move agilely. If you're a jazz musician, you practice a lot of chord progressions. So in the moment, you can get into that groove and just have a good time. So a lot of what that quote is talking about is that you do need to prepare. You do need to take time to get yourself in a position to do well in the moment. Now, no matter what, no matter what the situation, less so online than uh, in person, whether you are nervous or not, how do you at least appear to be confident? Yes. And you bring up a really important point. Everything that I've talked about so far has had to do with your mindset or what you do in the messaging, but how you say something is important as well, your nonverbal presence. And that has to do with how you hold your body, that has to do with the rate with which you speak. So there are a lot of things we can do to appear comfortable and confident. So let me give you a few examples. Uh, first and foremost, how you posture your body matters. We wanna make ourselves big. Many of us, when we are nervous or feel threatened, we, we make ourselves small. It's very self-protective. So how do you make yourself big? First, take your shoulder blades, your scapula bones. You know, if you've ever hunched over a laptop or a computer typing, it's where you get those aches in your back and just pull those shoulder blades down. And by doing that, you broaden your chest. Now, I'm not puffing out my chest. My elbows aren't being pulled back. But by just pulling my shoulder blades down, I look bigger. And when we look bigger, we seem more confident. Additionally, we want to make sure we gesture. And when we gesture, we want to go beyond our shoulders, not extending your arms out, but you're just going beyond your shoulders slightly. When we gesture in front of our chest, we look tight and nervous and, and defensive. So just going beyond your shoulders can be helpful. And then finally, we want to make sure that we have good eye contact. Confident people in this culture, North American culture, make eye contact. And I'm not saying you stare down somebody, but you actually look in their general direction. And everything, Moira, I've just shared applies also to being virtual. When you're in the box on the camera, I, I don't care if it's Zoom, Teams, Meet, WebEx, whatever it is, you want to make sure you pull your shoulder blades down, you want to gesture so people can see your hands and you look at the camera so it looks like you look at your audience. And if you do these things, you will appear more confident and we can practice this. And this is hard for many people, but there's so many opportunities where we could record ourselves. Many of these virtual tools have a recording feature. You can take your phone and record yourself while you practice and look and see what your audience will see. And this can be incredibly enlightening and helpful. So you can go through this whole methodology about being confident speaking spontaneously, but you also have to think about how other people see you when you are speaking spontaneously. Now we are recording this remotely and I'm, you're seeing a headshot of me. I'm seeing a headshot of you. And as you're speaking, your hands are gesturing and you're going outside the box. Yes. So I know as a human that you're not trying to fit, fit, fit inside the box, which we usually do, but that you have a much broader range of your expression, even though I'm only seeing a small portion of you. And my brain just believes it's so. You're much bigger as I look at you. That's exactly right. Now, the one trick when you are virtual and you gesture, your hands have to be higher because we mostly frame ourselves just to our mid chest. But when we're standing and we gesture, we tend to gesture slightly below our mid chest. So when I'm virtual, I tell everybody I coach and my students, thumbs at your shoulder. So when I gesture, my thumbs are at my shoulder level. So you see it in the screen because if I were normally to gesture, I would be down, you know, mid chest and you can't always see that. So we gesture higher when we're 
in the box. And that's important. Now, something many people have trouble with is small talk. You're in a room, you know no one, or you just met your client and you're waiting for an event to begin. You got to have small talk. Yes. Small talk is one of the most challenging of the spontaneous speaking situations. And, and I am on a personal mission to try to rebrand small talk. A lot of us dread it. We feel like it's a necessary evil when in fact, a lot of big things can happen during small talk. We can learn about ourselves and others. We can collaborate. We can set ourselves up for success in the future. There's a lot of good stuff that can happen. So when it comes to small talk, I like to pass along the advice that a, a friend and colleague of mine, her name is Rachel Greenwald. She's a fascinating person. She's an academic and a professional matchmaker. And she has this wonderful saying about small talk. In small talk, you want to be interested, not interesting. Many of us going into small talk, we want to be the, the best version of ourselves. We want to be super interesting. I see it as analogous to when we're playing tennis and you want to just ace the ball over the net. But in fact, if you are just curious, asking questions, immediately present, that's what makes small talk go well. So unlike tennis, I'd rather people envision it as that game of hacky sack, if you're familiar with that, where it's a little beanbag ball and we kick it back and forth with the idea being it never hits the ground. So to succeed in hacky sack, you need to set the other person up to kick it back to you. And in small talk, that's the same thing. By asking questions, you make it easy for the person to respond to you and they, their response then makes it easier for you to respond back. So the first thing I say about small talk is let's see it as what it is, which is a great opportunity. And then second, let's be interested, not interesting. Hey, it's what I always say. What's everybody's favorite topic? themselves. So, That's right. I was thinking, it's like, let's talk about you is all there yes. is to small talk. My, my mother-in-law has a black belt in small talk. She is amazing. <laughs> so her, her secret is three words. Her, her secret is tell me more. My wife is from the Midwest. When my mother-in-law comes out, she gets off the plane with three or four best friends that she did not know before the flight started. And it's simply because she's a good listener. She asks good questions and then she'll say, tell me more. She invites them, yes. invites them to talk and gives them the room and floor to do it. And then people tell you more and then you learn more. And then that leads to better conversation and communication. So there are lots of things we can do to be better. Now, uh, we all are speaking sometimes and we make mistakes, mm -hmm. whether we say the wrong name or the wrong number, or sometimes we say something and realize, ooh, that just did not go over with the audience. Didn't read that audience right going in. Uh, what do you do? Well, so if it is something that is a big enough issue that you have to apologize, you absolutely apologize. And in my book, the second part of the book is all about specific situations where we have to speak spontaneously. And one of those is apologizing. So if you make a, a mistake or something that could be perceived as offensive, we need to apologize. And, and the closer in time to the offending act, the better. Now, sometimes when we make a mistake, we need not highlight that mistake. If, if I misspeak a little bit or worse, a, a lot of people think, well, I wanted to say this, but I didn't say it and therefore I should correct it. Your audience does not know what you intended to say. They only know what you do say. So my advice is, is in the moment you have to assess, was that issue 
significant enough to correct or not. If it's offensive, you should absolutely correct it. If it's just missing some information in the flow you wanted, maybe you can come back to it if there's Q&A at the end of the session, or maybe you can at the end of what you're saying say, oh, and one more point I'd like to remind you of. So we have to make that assessment of how significant is that issue and then decide. The one thing that, that I'll, uh, the example of pre-apologizing I'll give, and this one really drives me nuts, is when you're in a meeting and somebody says, I'm sorry, but we might run over. Well, if you know you're going to run over, adjust and adapt. Don't pre-apologize and then run over. Fix it. You know, so pre-apologizing is not something that I recommend people do. I've been speaking with Matt Abrams, the author of Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. We'll talk more after a break. Both Whole Tech Nation programs and biotech-only podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. For more information, technation.com and biotechnation.com. In the second half of our show, an effort under development which may provide the benefits of Ozempic and Wagovi without the injection. We also answer the question, are diet sodas and sugar substitutes really all that bad? Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Matt Abrams, a longtime lecturer in strategic communications at Stanford Business School. He's the author of Think Faster, Talk Smarter How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. Let's say you've been asked to give not just any speech, you've been asked to give a mm. TED Talk. There's absolutely some added pressure. But the things that make you successful in planned speaking, planned presenting, which is what a TED Talk and, and other high stakes uh, keynotes and things are about, uh, the same rules apply. You, you need to really think about your audience and what's important and relevant to them. You have to have a clear goal that helps you focus. And to my mind, a goal has three parts, information, emotion, and action. In other words, you have to think, what do I want my audience to know? How do I want them to feel and what do I want them to do? And that helps you focus what you say. And then you have to think about how to be engaging. You know, speaking for 12 minutes or 18 minutes, TED Talks vary in length. 
that's a long time for somebody to listen to you. Are there things you can do to make it more engaging beyond being relevant? So do you take a poll? Do you ask questions? Do you use analogies? Do you use language that invites people in? So these are the things we think about when we work to do a high stakes, highly significant communication, but they apply even if you're just doing a company all's hands or a team meeting, these same ideas can really help. Do famous people, celebrities, even politicians, do they prepare to give TED Talks differently? Uh, I don't think so. If, they, if they're doing it well, uh, they, they, they have to put in the reps. The only way you get good at speaking, and I don't care if it's a TED Talk or you're just talking to your local Cub Scout or, or Girl Scout group, is you have to do repetition reflection and feedback. You have to practice. You have to practice a lot. Yet they have all been coached. They have been pr practicing. Sometimes, as I said, their content is edited. So it's not a fair comparison. You know, so a lot of people say, I'm just not good at speaking. And I say, tell me who's a good speaker. And they'll point out some of these people who've given amazing talks. And I'll say, did you know they've been coached for years? Now, the only piece of advice I have is what happened to me when I gave a TEDx talk. Mm -hmm. And that is that I told two stories that all had a particular, you know, uh, theme together. Yes. Um, and there were several points in each story which were funny and the audience laughed. And of course, when the audience laughs, you, you take a little space and then you continue your story and, yeah. and everything seems pretty interesting. They didn't mic the audience. So oh. when I looked him back. So you, you're, you're pausing and nobody I'm pausing. knows why you're pausing. Yeah. Yes. And it looked like, I didn't know what it thought anybody thought I was doing. But if you had heard the audience, they, you could hear the laughter and then you would, it would make sense. Oh my, yes. Just for anyone out there doing TED or TEDx, make sure they mic the audience. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that's great advice. Thank you for sharing. I had not thought of that. Yeah. Hard earned. Hard earned, buddy. Yes, yes. <laughs> Matt, it is such a pleasure. And I am so glad to call you, Betty. I so have enjoyed talking with you. And I do hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Moira, it has been a true pleasure. I would enjoy being back with you. My guest today is Matt Abrahams. His book is Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. There's no doubt that Ozempic and Wagovi and similar drugs are at the forefront of today's popular approach to weight loss, with many also intended to treat type 2 diabetes. Common to their success and key is releasing the hormone known as GLP-1. But GLP-1 is only one of a whole complement of hormones involved. What about bringing all of the relevant hormones back into play? and without an injection. Dr. Stefan Sebastian Bowles is the chief scientific officer of Afia Pharma in Zurich, Switzerland. Dr. Bowles, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I've never started a biotech interview in this particular way, and it's because of something you told me in our pre-interview. And what you told me was about eating refined food versus, we'll say, whole foods, and the role of or problem with our small intestines when we eat those foods. Now, now paint that picture for us. 
Well, happy to. So let's go back 130 years. 130 years ago, the Swiss surgeon Cedric Roux, who is actually, who stands for the R in RYGB surgery, which is the surgery that's applied to morbidly obese patients to reduce the size of their stomach. So Cedric Roux did this, this operation and taught us many things. Among those things was the fact that the small intestine can be separated into two parts. One upper part, that is equipped to absorb food and one lower part that is equipped to sense food. And that's actually an ingenious construction because whenever you eat food, some of the food makes its way down to the second part of the small intestine where its presence can be sensed. And that actually generates a signal that ramps up digestive processes. And that's exactly what you need when you have have food intake. You want to use the food. You would want to utilize it and you want to digest it first and then you want to take it up and distribute it in the body. And that's orchestrated by the lower part of the small intestine. And what's important is What's implied here is that food gets down there. The problem we have with a highly refined food is that less and less food actually reaches the distal part of the small intestine. The reason for this is that it's not only the fact that the food is refined, it's also the quantity and the whole composition of food. Now we eat far too much fat and far too much proteins, which slows down the passage to the upper part of the small intestine. And that's a problem because what is now lacking is the stimulation of the slow, lower part of the small intestine, which is essential to regulate the process. Now, when we get a portion of the food down to the lower part of the lower intestine and the, the cells down there, the food sensing cells are down there. What happens from there in our body? This is actually very, very fascinating. It was noted that these cells were responsible for higher insulin output to digest glucose. What we know now is much more, they do much, much more. They have, they have direct nerval links to the brain. They can regulate brain functions like hunger, satiety, energy expenditure, and, and at the end of the day, food intake. And that's a property that, that comes more and more into the focus of everything we do and try to, try to uh, affect with our, with our therapeutic approaches. The reason why these cells can do this is that they produce hormones, as I said before, and these hormones can stimulate nerve endings that directly project into the brain. And some of these cells even form synapses with the nerves in the brain. So they actually directly connect to the brain. This is how you can actually look at this. And this is uh, this gives the brain a very clear picture. And you just said it, Maura, not only that food is there, but even what quality food is on there. So it's a very, it's a very fine-tuned mechanism. And so we have three different signaling model modalities. One is endocrine, which are the hormones. Then neuroendocrine, where the hormones stimulate nerve cells, and then a direct connection to the nerve cells, which is a neuronal pathway. And these three things together are incredibly powerful to regulate our behavior and our energy expenditure. So when we treat those cells, when we stimulate these cells, we actually directly tickle the brain. And that's something that kind of surfaced as an idea only a few years ago. Now, I feel hungry is in our brain. I feel full is in our brain, not in our stomachs. Well, there is, you feel full, and this is why pretty much every language has, has this term, I feel full, right? <laughs> and and uh, so, because you can feel it, 
And this is the distension of the stomach. And this gives the first signal to, hey, you better stop now. But, but this isn't, this can adapt. So some people can eat enormous amounts of food, as we know. But what, what you feel later on. So when you feel hungry, when, when hunger ceases, that's an effect of those pathways we talked about before. Hunger goes away. And that's important because then your whole behavior changes. Food cravings stops. Even craving for certain specific special foods like chocolate stops. And this is this is a central effect. It's not that feeling full. It comes later. It's an effect that comes through the back door and regulates your behavior. That's your brain. That's not the stomach. Now, we've all heard so much about Ozempic, the weight loss drug, and something called GLP-1. Paint that picture for us. And how does that relate to what you've told us? Well, it actually, it's very closely related because when, when, this, when these mechanisms were discovered that these hormones can sensitize the pancreas to, to produce more insulin, and GLP-1 was then, after it was cloned, um, and, and made available and accessible, was used and, and designed to treat type 2 diabetes based on this idea that it exerts metabolic control mostly on glucose. And it was approved for, for type two, to treat type 2 diabetes in 2005. Only much later, and that was in 2021, it was approved to, for, to induce weight loss or to treat people with obesity in order to allow them to lose weight. This is what Vigovi and Ozempic do. The point here is the fact that that they that these these that GLP one induces weight loss was was a serendipitous finding during the trials. It was never meant or designed to to induce weight loss. It it came second. It's a very very well defined effect. It's a very it's a an effect that's very beneficial to the patients without any question. The point is, GLP one is just one of many hormones that are being released from from those cells and these cells release many more many other hormones glp2 which uh, which has very prominent roles locally around those cells then oxyntomodulin uh, uh, glycentin pyy just to name a few it's a whole portfolio of hormones that interact very precisely to regulate all the different functions that are necessary when you eat something you can see there are many functions that that need to be that need to be orchestrated, need to be achieved by very different hormones, and GLP one is just one of those. That's that's the point, and it was a, it's it was a very good choice to to treat type uh, to treat type two diabetes and also now uh, weight loss. But there's much more to come. It's, if you want to if you want to look at it as a treasure chest down there, it, it certainly is one because there are many many more many other hormones that we could exploit. Now, this whole area that Afaya is working in, what are you doing? Well, we act, we came together and we we looked at what's known. We we looked at what's known and and we first we were first fascinated by how well the system is orchestrated. And then we act, we thought this should be something that we could use potentially. And the idea was a combination of what the two things we've talked about before. So it was very well known that GLP-1 is a very potent hormone, has very has a lot of beneficial effects, and that GLP-1 is normally produced by those cells. 
The fact that it is not produced anymore is due to the fact that these cells are deprived from contact to food. So food that normally gets down there and when you eat healthy and when you're you're healthy yourself does not appear anymore down there in patients with metabolic diseases, most importantly obesity, but also lots of other diseases. It also, it's, it's affected by our quality of food, as we discussed before. If you eat highly refined food in, 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 in inadequate compositions, you have a lack of exposure of these cells to, to food. So the very simple, the, the frighteningly simple idea we had is to just re-expose these cells to food. So we developed beads, or a better word, word might, might be granules. And these granules behave like fluids. And because they behave like fluids, they are able to bypass the food that blocks the, the upper part of the small small intestine. And this is why they will get down to the, to the lower part of the small intestine, no matter what happens or blocks the, the upper part of the small intestine. And that's exactly what we wanted to achieve. And once we were sure that we got our beets down there, completely independent of who, who took them, how much that people had eaten before and so on, we had to decide what to put into the beets because it's, it's not about the beets, it's about getting them down there, but they have to release something to stimulate the cells. And what we found to be most effective to stimulate these cells as a food component is glucose. Just simple glucose, because the cells are equipped, very well equipped to sense glucose. And the signal they generate after having seen glucose, after having sensed glucose, is a massive signal that then leads to the release of all the hormones we we talked about before. And these hormones then as I used All the hormones, not just GLP-1. All the hormones. Yeah, all the all the hormones, not not just GLP ones, the entire portfolio. And that's that's an important fact. And these hormones will then do what they need to do locally. They will they will get into the bloodstream, get distributed throughout the body. They will they will excite the nerve endings and so on. And this is all preformed. We use what's already there. The only thing that might be our claim to famous, we wake up a system that fell dormant because these cells hadn't seen food components in quite a while. So this is why we, why we, what we do here is really kind of waking the cells up and exploiting an, a complete mechanism that's already there, formed in millions of years and optimized in millions of years. Are these cells sort of dormant uh, in these conditions like obesity? What we think, and 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 what what the literature thinks is is uh, that these cells, yeah, you could call it dormant. So because of the lack of exposure to food, they even downregulate the the different proteins that are there to sense food. So they they become less ready, less equipped to sense food. So there could be even such an effect as waking them up and then getting them back to full speed over time. We don't know this yet, but it's very well accepted that a common denominator of all these metabolic diseases is the lack of exposure to food, which has this impact on those cells. Yes, as you said, Moira, dormant is a good is a good description. I mean, we've we've described it in other places to Sleeping Beauty. And in this case, we would be the prince. There you go. Very good. <laughs> now, let me also ask you, you, you keep saying glucose. How different is that from just sugar? It is actually just sugar. So they are different. That's not quite accurate from, from a chemical, biochemical standpoint. But when we talk about sugar, we actually refer to glucose. That's, I think that's an accurate accurate definition. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much the same thing. Pretty much the same thing. Yes. Now, AFIA, and for those people who want to know, that's A-P-H-A-I-A, AFIA. 
you're well into phase two in the U.S., in Germany, and in the nation of Georgia, uh, and you're fully enrolled, uh, and that's great. But I want to start with phase one, that time when you were first putting this drug into humans, the granules into humans. Uh, what did you do in phase one, and, and what did you learn? We did a few things, and we learned a lot. So what, what phase one typically is, and it was the same in our case, is a phase of concept, is a proof of concept trial. So we had to prove our concept. And what we did is we chose, we chose 20 obese and otherwise healthy people. Uh, this trial was conducted in Romania, and those 20 patients took our formulation in the morning, and then we did a pharmacodynamic and that's a monstrous word, but it, what it means is that we that we gave the formulation to the to the people and to the volunteers, and we took blood every thirty minutes afterwards. And in all those samples that we drew from them over the over ten hours, we measured the hormones. We measured GLP one, we measured oxyntomodulin, GLP two, PYY, and so on. And what we hope to find is that our treatment would increase. The level levels of these hormones, because that is the prediction after everything we we had discussed and we kind of fantasized about. And so, what we saw was exactly that: our treatment did release all those hormones. It released all those hormones in twenty patients, pretty much ex more or less at the same time point. So all the patients with the hormone profiles reached the peak within one hour was highly reproducible, which actually means that the idea to bypass the food bolus and also design a treatment that's independent of motility or, or, or length of the, of the small intestine and whatever worked. And we, we learned that, that, this, that these hormones that we release were not just GLP-1, as I said before, but the entire portfolio. Now, you just don't say, here, take this packet of granules. <laughs> What's the size of the, of, the, of the packet or the amount of, of granules, and how do you ingest it? So when you, when you think about the dose, this very tiny beads kind of fill one teaspoon. And when you mix it with water, because we mix it with a powder that creates a jello, you have approximately one tablespoon of jello which you then can ingest and wash down with water. And that is how you take it. So we try to make it easy to, to take, and we try to make it palatable. And we also, the gel can be, can be flavored. So the, the current flavor is orange, but you can, you're free to choose any other flavor. The idea behind this is to make it as easy as possible because the ingestion should not be harmful, which is definitely isn't, and it should be easy to take because we want the patients to take this on a daily basis. You've gone through this now with a number of participants in phase one, many more in phase two. They've got to mix the, the granules with water and come up with a tablespoon or two of, of jello and then get it down. Has this been a problem? Have you lost participants because of this formulation? No, we didn't lose any patients because of the mode of intake. So patients were were happy with with the way they had to take the formulation and complied very well. Now, you say once a day, does it matter when you take this? 
Well, what we did as as a start, and again, this phase two trial that we that we designed is is a trial where we try to deliver the proof that our formulation, which worked well in the phase one, also works in a diseased population. So that was is our main goal. This is why we allowed the patients to take it or advise the patients to take the formulation two hours at minimum 30 minutes before their main meal, which means that the patient, he or she, had to decide whether it's going to be the break before breakfast, whether it's going to be before lunch or before dinner. And we did this on purpose because, again, we wanted to do this make it as easy as possible for the patients, and we wanted to do it under real-world conditions. That was our main goal. So we trusted our formulation quite a bit and did not try to put too many boundary conditions in. We, we, we let them go very free with whatever they felt was necessary to do. They just had to take it regularly. And that's that's what they did. This, that's what they complied for. In further approaches, we might think about varying this this regime a bit because we know, and this links back to what what, you, what we discussed before. There are circadian effects when it comes to to food intake, so it's not only important when what you eat, but also when you eat. Food. And this is when you think about time-restricted feeding, interval fasting, and all these kind of things. This is Those are those ideas. And they could easily be combined with what we have in our hands right now, because what we do, and that is what's clearly shown by our phase one data, we emulate the hormonal response of an entire meal with 8 to 12 grams of glucose that is not even being absorbed. And that's that's what we what we're going to build on now. Well, right now you have about 150 patients in in phase two studies across three countries. Um, how long will it be before we get some results from that phase two? Well, we we know pretty well when this when this will when we will get the first results because we have all patients enrolled and we know the treatment durations so we can very well extrapolate and we're going to get the first headline results in June next year so in June twenty four pretty quick pretty quick for that that'll be very yeah. interesting you said another thing in our pre interview that I want to bring up you said that seventy percent of pre diabetics convert to diabetics within a year. And you're trying to intervene here as well with this same drug. Tell us what you're trying to do here. Yeah, so I think that's 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 the, the second phase two trial that, that is ongoing and that we are fully enrolled. And the idea behind this is, is again, relatively simple. As you said, depending on the age and the, the comorbidities, you, the pre-diabetics progress towards becoming diabetics pretty quickly, within a year or at, at latest within five years. So this is this is a point where one should intervene, where one should to start to treat patients to prevent this from happening. And that's exactly the idea of prevention that's, that's being discussed everywhere is something where we thought that we could do this because we have, we have a simple drug, a simple formulation. Uh, we have it is benign. It has a very it has a very benign side effect profile or adverse effect profile. So it could be something to really prevent something from happening. And this is why we tried whether it would be working. So the trial design is is 
Well, again, a short trial. We do not wait for them to convert or not to convert because that would take too much time. We look at their oral glucose tolerance. And the, the oral glucose tolerance is affected in pre-diabetics. They have a reduced oral glucose tolerance, which means that their glucose, that their blood glucose goes higher and needs more time to come back down again than in a healthy population. And this can obviously be measured. And what we did is we designed the trial in a way that we treat those, those pre-diabetic patients with our substance. And the surrogate parameter for improvement is our or a glucose tolerance test. And what we hope to see is that after six weeks of treatment with our formulation, the oral glucose tolerance will improve in those pre-diabetics, which would be an indicator that the pre-diabetic situation itself also improves, which would could mean that the progression towards diabetes gets delayed. And that would be prevention right there. Now, one last question Diet sodas, everyone's drinking them. Sugar substitutes, you find them in every sugar bowl in a restaurant. You have regular sugar and right next to it, a number of sugar substitutes. What does that do in this small intestine equation? Is it related there at all? Yeah, so this is a question that's... That's a tricky one because, I mean, people, and, and we know this from many friends of ours, are quasi-religious about the fact that they eat this theory or whatever. And I try not to, to mention the brands here, but everyone knows them. So what really happens after ingestion of those, those, uh, those drinks is only a part and not completely understood and controversially discussed. It's very clear that the sweetness that is maintained in those drinks, and which is the primary stimulus, stimulates a digestive reaction in the body. And one of the ideas behind behind the fact why those drinks could be less effective than you would wish for is that this triggers an insulin response. And once insulin is up, you need to get glucose. You, beca- you get you become hungry, and you need to eat something. So what you could what you could achieve with those with those strings is actually an opposite effect that you eat more afterwards. But I would be I would be I try to to be very very careful here because this is truly controversial. What it does in the in the distal small intestine as intestine that we're we're involved with and that we're interested in. There are absolutely no data, so I, I, I can answer you your question. What's happening there? I can only tell you that that the effects are are diverse, and uh, many many people. That is why I said it's cross religious benefit from those strings, and others see opposite effects. And what what's left to us as scientists is we try to explain what's happening and. That's all I can I can say to that. The jury is out. The jury is out on yes, that. Yes, that's true. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Dr. Bolt, very exciting. Uh, I hope you'll come back and see us again. Oh, I would love to. Thank you very much. Dr. Stefan Sebastian Bowles is the chief scientific officer of Afaya Pharma in Zurich, Switzerland. More information is available at Afaya. That's A-P-H-A-I-A, Afaya Pharma. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. 
Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.